0: Sanctus Church, we're so glad that you're joining us here today, whether in Port Perry or Bowmanville here at Ajax and to the volunteers this week in Pickering. Welcome to week five in our fall series out of the book of Galatians. If you've been with us as we've walked week in and week out, this letter was written to actually one of the earliest group of churches that was actually not Jewish, but actually non-Jewish. And they were being tempted to give into a false gospel and walk away from the true gospel they had embraced. This takes place only 16 years after Jesus' own death and resurrection. Now, we found out that these false teachers were called Judaizers, and one summarized their view this way, not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must now become Jewish. And the battle lines had been drawn because, as another summarized, Paul had been teaching this, Jesus plus nothing Is everything. Jesus' work alone and and grace alone and faith alone. So the false teachers were teaching all the right things about who Jesus was, but then they were saying that you had to do these other Jewish rituals to make you a Christian and remain in the faith. So last week we asked ourselves this question. This was the heart of the matter 2,000 years ago. Was this going to be a Jewish thing or a global multicultural thing? I found an illustration this week that I think summarizes the whole struggle for Paul and might bring this home for all of us, whether you're a seeker or skeptic, brand new Christian, or been walking for a long time. There was a very famous tightrope walker named Charles uh, Blondine or Blondine. He lived from uh, 1824 to 1897, and he was famous for doing something near here. He used to set up a rope across Niagara Falls, and he'd walk across it multiple times. So confident did he become that he made the journey backwards as well as forwards. He started getting so good, he performed various tricks. He would sit over Niagara Falls on a rope on a stool, and he got so good, he started eating meals on the stool over Niagara Falls. By the way, this is true, but the most famous trick he ever did was this. He asked for a volunteer to be carried on his back over Niagara Falls in what must have been one of the most supreme acts of physical trust or stupidity in history, a man actually stepped forward and said, I will be carried on your back. And the man was carried back and forth. Now, the person says, now stop. Imagine, because that's a true historical moment, That halfway across Niagara Falls, on this man's back, balancing on just a small rope, the man said to the other men, Well, I'm not sure if I trust you very much anymore. I think I'd like to get off now and go back by myself. Can you imagine what the man would have said to him? Not only from the professional, but from friends and family. Has he taken leave of his senses? Of course, when he gets off, both will die. This is profoundly suicidal. And Paul's point is exactly the same with the Galatians. He's saying, how in the world can you start trusting in yourself after you're walking across a great chasm that has eternal implications and you think now you're on Jesus' back, you can just get off and say, well, thanks so much, but maybe I can bring something to the situation. As we keep walking week in and week out through this amazing book, not only are we starting to see what true Christianity and the true gospel is and what it's not, But today, the dynamic in the book changes. The trajectory changes. Now we begin to see the impact, the results, the damage on the ground, not only if you believe in a false gospel, but actually if you start to live under a false gospel. It's not just how do I get in. It's how do I live after I've gotten in. Is your Christian life going to be marked by freedom and joy and love or something else? Let me demonstrate it this way. Every generation has struggles with technology in the house. There used to be only one phone in homes, right, with large cords, and everyone argued who could be on it. I don't remember those days. But now there's a new thing in my home that leads me perpetually to sin and grow in holiness. See, my children, 11, 10, and 8, don't really watch television anymore. They're of the generation that watches iPads more than television. And they watch them, and then when they die, they throw them on the ground and don't charge them. And so when I go to use an iPad that I need, which by the way, hashtag is mine, and I pick it up and it is dead, I yell out in the house, why is this not charged? And they go, that's the translation. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience. And then deeper than that, my wife and I now have this new battle that not only are iPads dead, we literally have an iPad graveyard in our home 24/7. Then the chargers start disappearing. So we just want a charger. We just, for the love of God, want a charger in our home because we want to plug in the iPhone, because actually we do things as adults that are needed, not just watching Netflix. And as we're plugging, we can't find it. I'm like, where is the charger? I don't know. So here's what I want to say. We all know you can't watch an iPad without it being charged. And you can't just charge an iPad by going, be charged. It has to actually get something that helps it be charged. It needs a connection, a hub, electricity. And Paul is saying, so, You want to believe in a false gospel? Sure. Just so you know, the implication is this. You're going to be running on your own electricity. How is that going to go for you? Here's how it's going to end up. You're going to be a dead iPad on the floor being able to do nothing. Galatians 3.1. You foolish, oh, stupid Galatians, who's bewitched you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. See, the death of Jesus and why Jesus died was clearly painted to you. This was graphically and vividly preached. Oh, by the way, unlike what many people thought then or think now, Jesus's death was not a mistake. Jesus's death was not a political act. Jesus' death death was not the religious leaders getting their own way. Jesus' death was not the Romans killing off another so-called great threat to Roman peace. Jesus' death was not just some social justice warrior being taken out by dangerous people. No, no. God gave Jesus over to deal with our sin. This was the plan of God all the time. Jesus' execution was the plan of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because he loves us. I need to say this every time I preach this. Is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse where the father, no, no, no. Remember, Jesus is equal with the father and because he loved the father eternally and loved you eternally, he chose to come to take the penalty that we ourselves had committed to bring us home. He says, hey, you Galatians... What you heard through preaching, this is the essence of the Christian faith. What Jesus has done on the cross, that historical event 16, 20, 25 years ago, wasn't just then, it's having effect on us now because when you trust in the work of Jesus through the cross, you are, here's the trajectory change, given the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit, one wrote, never does an end run around the cross. Verse two, I would like to learn just one thing from all of you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or believing on what you heard. Okay, so when you were saved, when that salvation thing happened to you, when you were legally justified and relationally made right with God, uh, who, by the way, is perfect all the time, you weren't acting Jewish at that moment, right? And yet you were still given the Holy Spirit, right? Oh, and right, God never places his spirit into people unless he's already accepted them and called them family. So why do you need to do all this religious stuff? Because you're already accepted because the Holy Spirit's already in you, right? Right? See, Paul would later write and summarize this profound event that has happened to every single one of us if you are a Christian. I know some of you are not, but we who are Christian, what I'm about to describe, what Paul is arguing for, has happened. It's called baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what happens right when you get saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For we were all, every single Christian, has been baptized by one Spirit as to form one body, whether Jew, non-Jew, slave or free, We're all given the one Holy Spirit to drink. Now that verse, and what Paul is writing about 16 years after the death of Jesus, was like an earthquake shattering both Roman and Jewish worldviews of their day and our day. Every single ethnic and socio-economic bracket of the ancient world is put in its right place. And see the power of this. All the religious and gender and economic and racial bar- barriers that governments and education and war and writing has never been able to correct. God does, by His Spirit, just like that. When we meet Jesus, there is a level foot at the cross, no matter who you are. Every single human distinction is not removed, but it's actually put in its right place. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Holy Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And think about it. The Holy Spirit is the only distinguishing factor between you and a non-Christian. He is actually the one that begins your walk. He declared, you're a child of God. He binds us together, not only in this church, but every church. He convicts us of our sin. He empowers us to live like Jesus and gives us the same gifts that Jesus used. And the Holy Spirit guarantees that when we die, that's not the end. We will be physically raised from the dead like Jesus. But this also is critical, especially if you grew up in church. Some of you have been taught your whole life that baptism of the Holy Spirit is a part two experience that you need to fast for and pray for and run to what they call the altar floor and beg and maybe he'll, no, 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 no. Right when you became a Christian, you were baptized in the Spirit. Meeting Jesus and being dunked in the Spirit is the same thing. You are called to be filled, and I am called to be filled over a lifetime, again and again, and that can take on many forms. But meeting Jesus and getting the Spirit is the same thing. That's why later Paul would write this in Romans 8-9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Or Ephesians 1:13. Notice, not when you fasted and prayed and begged. No, when you believed you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, without the Holy Spirit you don't belong. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Without the Holy Spirit, you're still condemned. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not even a child of God. Only through the Holy Spirit do you find Jesus, and only through Jesus can you get to the Father. That's why Paul would later write in Ephesians 2.18, for through Jesus, we both, Jews and non-Jews, have access to the Father. Notice, by one Spirit. And here's Paul's point. So, all this stuff happened to you, without acting religiously Jewish, like eating kosher or or worshiping only on Saturdays or all the guys getting circumcised. So that means that God gave you his spirit even before you tried being Jewish, which means these teachers who say you'll only get saved after you become Jewish are false because the spirit of God, what? Is already in you. Oh, but there's more. It's not just that you get this. How do you want to spend the rest of your Christian life on earth? How do you want to make the impossible, loving your neighbor, forgiving enemies, blessing those who curse you, how does that become reality? How do you plan to live a holy life? He says in verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish the race by the Spirit, uh, by, by the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if really it was in vain? You want to live a Christian life on your own strength. That's unthinkable, undoable, impossible just saying, can you walk with Jesus and be more like Jesus with the law, by ritual, by your own power? I mean, not just back then, not just yesterday, today and tomorrow. So if striving couldn't get you in with God, you think striving is going to help you grow with God? See, now you're saved, now you're walking in salvation, there's a new word, and let me bring this word to all of us. It's sanctification. Sanctification. It's an old word, sanctified. It's actually where we get our church name, to be holy, sanctus, to become more like Jesus. So here's the question. How do we become more like Jesus? Work harder, pray harder, come to church more, strive more, be religious, more list, hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, there's a hymn that I grew up singing called Jesus Paid It All. Anyone remember that hymn? Anyone? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson saint. I hear some of you singing it. He washed it white as snow. When before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And we'd go, oh, amen. But if you believe that you can live like a Christian by duty or religious ability alone, actually one person said, you need to rewrite the hymn. Jesus paid a lot. A lot is left to pay. Since the bill is infinite, let's all work till judgment day. (laughs) Now we, ha, 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 but ho hold on. Why this matters is because many of us in this church believe the right gospel, but we still act like we believe the false one. Oh, grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone, but man, do I need to prove myself to God to make sure he still loves me? So again, I ask you, verse five, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you? by the works of the law or by believing on what you heard? Oh, so you've got the evidence of the Spirit because you're saved. And actually, oh my goodness, there's miracles happening among you at church, which means, by the way, the spiritual gifts are being used. And not just one gift, all the gifts. So can you use gifts of the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit? Well, no, because that's Him in you. So week in and week out, he's saying to this church, you're seeing evidences of the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus and rose him from the dead and you've got spiritual gifts and now these false teachers are telling you you're not saved yet? Okay, he says, that's it, I'm done. Let's go to the foundation of this whole argument. The false teachers believe all the right things about Jesus, but they're saying you also need to add things. You, most of you, are non-Jews. You need to become Jewish and then God will like you. Fine, Paul says, I, as a world-class rabbi Jew, I'm gonna deal with this. I'm going to talk to you about the very first Jew who ever existed. His name was Abram. Later, God changed his name to Abraham. He says, verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, this is like a bombshell that basically overcame everything the false teachers were saying. Abram's story starts all the way back in the beginning. Abram did not worship God. Abram's father was a moon worshiper. Abram worshipped many gods. He did not know God. God decided to meet him. Genesis 12:1. Then God said to Abram, I, God, command you to go forth with closed eyes until renouncing your country, you have given yourself wholly to me. And I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God, in his sovereignty, decided to meet Abram, who wasn't looking for him, and then out of him makes Israel and chooses Israel to be his people and his representatives, not because they're better, not because they're more religious, just because of mercy and mystery. By the way, that's the foundation of the Jewish faith. God meets Abram, a moon worshiper, shows him there is only one God and encounters him and God destines, decrees, appoints, and settles beforehand that Abraham's family will become Israel and through this nation everyone will be blessed, not just the Jewish people. A little bit later, Abram comes back to God a little perplexed. He says, well, how in the world can I bless all the nations... How how can I even have a family because my wife and I are really old, like really, really old, and we can't have kids, so how are you going to work this out? Genesis 15.1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your great reward. Abram says back to God, Sovereign Lord, one who is in charge, what can you give me since I am childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said... You, God, have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Well, God spoke back to Abram. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky, count the stars. If indeed you can even count them all. And he said, So shall be your offspring. Abram, ready? Believe the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, everyone lean in. Abram is credited. God takes money from his bank account and puts it in Abram's bank account. Abram is called righteous, okay with God, in relationship with God. Oh, and here's the point. Abram isn't even called Abraham yet and hasn't even been circumcised yet. Actually, the very first Jew who ever existed, Abram, was made right by God because God chose him. Second of all, he was called righteous 10 years before God instituted the symbol of circumcision, and he is called righteous 400 years before Moses even is given the Ten Commandments formally. So, Abram is already righteous and in good standing with God. Why? Because he's really Jewish? No. Faith. Faith in what? faith in faith? No, no, faith in God. In other words, I believe what God says about this situation is true. I believe not the situation or me, I believe God. And then God says over Abraham, your legal status has changed. You are okay with me. And Paul is saying to this church, this group of churches, why are you wasting your time with these false teachers who are saying you have to become Jewish when the very first Jew was sanctified and made right with God through faith, not through the law. As one wrote, it means that God is treating Abraham as if he was living a righteous life. This idea flies in the face of every single traditional religion on earth that tells us either you're living righteous and pleasing and acceptable to God, or you're living unrighteously, and you're alienated from God. But Paul points to Abraham and shows us it's possible to be loved and accepted by God, even while we are sinful and imperfect. Anyone thankful God is like that? By the way, later, Paul would bring this up again in Romans Romans 4.1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In fact, Abraham, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Old Testament say? Here it is again. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, then Paul does something that we sitting here in 2019 are like, ah, about, and we shouldn't be. He breaks all the rules. He reverses literally everything he has taught his whole adult religious life. He reverses everything he heard as a child. He writes one verse that's benefits are being felt in this room and at every site in every church globally at this moment. Verse seven. Understand. Understand then that those who live or have faith are children of Abraham. Okay, you're a child of Abraham not because you're Jewish. You're not a child of Abraham because you got circumcised if you're a boy. You're you're not a child of Abraham because you have the Old Testament or that you even obey it. You become a child of Abraham because of faith. Abraham believed and had an informed trust in what God said. And Paul is saying, God has pointed to Jesus and said, have faith in him and you'll be okay. Now, if you hung out with any good, faithful, kind Orthodox Jew 2,000 years ago, or even today, if you went to Toronto and hung out with a neighbor of yours who was an Orthodox Jew and said this word, this is profound offense. Why? Well, they would say Abraham is our father and Abraham is our ancestor and not some unclean Jew. And they don't mean that in a spitting way. It's, it's a standing sense. Another helps us understand the thinking of the time when they simply wrote this. And lead in, please. <laughs> Just as millions, I'd say billions, of religious, good, moral people today think that they're going to get by because they're good people. Oh, and God will certainly forgive them. Thousands in the Jewish nation in Jesus and Paul's time thought the same way. Oh, but they took it one step further. See, they believed that everyone else would be judged except Jews. A great common tradition held that Abraham himself would sit at the gate of hell. And as each person who rightly should go to hell would be going there, Anyone who was Jewish, he'd take out his hand and say, no, not you, you're Jewish. No, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. Typho the Jew, a famed leader, wrote this. They who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinner or unbelieving or disobedient towards God, will share in God's eternal kingdom. So the average Jewish person would say, well, we're not under judgment at all because Abraham is our father and because we're Jewish, we've got coverage. No, Paul says, actually, I'm one of the best products of the Jewish faith then or at any time, and let me tell you the truth. Verse 8, the Old Testament foresaw that God would justify the non-Jews in faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely in faith are blessed among with Abraham, along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a global thing. This was God's plan all the time. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God make the Jewish nation for himself? Well, at the beginning, didn't he say right at the beginning, my plan is I'm going to call you so through you the world will see me. And every nation on earth is going to rediscover who God is. He says this in Isaiah 49, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And then Paul's point is this, did did we do it? So he's like, as a Jewish person, he's like, did we do it? Did we keep the law perfectly? Were we holy as God is holy? Were we loving as God is loving? Did we show the whole human family the holiness and love of God? Did we provide a way home or did we become prideful and arrogant and blind and actually so religious mistrust and so actually maybe we're in trouble just like the rest of the world? You know, when Jesus was born, we celebrated a Christmas. There's a man named Simeon in the temple when Jesus is dedicated within eight days of his birth. Simon holds Jesus, and he says, "For my eyes have seen your salvation, God, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to non-Jews and for the glory of your people Israel." What does Matthew write in his famed genealogy, Matthew one? 1? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. What? The son of Abraham. He says, "Now you're starting to believe these false teachers." They're saying to be saved, you have to become Jewish, and then to keep walking with Jesus, you have to become even more Jewish. Really? You want to go there? You want to go back to there? Okay, I'm just going to tell you then, verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It is written in God's word. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Okay, so if you want to rely on the law, to be okay with God and keep, just so you know, you have to do it perfectly, because God is perfect. And if you don't do it perfectly, you will be cursed. You sure you want to go back there? Verse 11, clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by what? Faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the person who does these things will live by them. The law is not based on faith. So if I'm going to try to do this, I've got to do it perfectly and I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail. I'm going to be between a rock and a hard place, damned if I do, damned if I don't. Paul says to these Christians who are already free, why would you want to get off the back of Jesus on the tightrope and think, now you can dance and be okay? You've already been free. And then he does it. (laughs) Right here he pens one of the most significant verses in the whole of the Bible. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written in the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole. Now we're looking at this like, I'm lost, John, hanging on a pole and cursed. I don't get it, okay? He's quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23. And here's what would happen if you lived in Jewish times in in Israel, And you had been convicted of a capital offense, you would be put to death by stoning. And then the community would take your body and they'd place you on a pole, all beaten and bruised and dead, as a sign that the community had rejected you, ready, and God had rejected you. And then Paul comes and says, ready, Jesus has been hung on a pole for the sins of the world. Jesus is under God's curse because he decided out of love to deal with our law breaking and our lack of love that's why later Paul would write in 2nd Corinthians five twenty one, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God here's what Jesus's best friend wrote 1st John four ten, and this is love not that we've loved God but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation a wrath absorbing person for our sins here's what Paul wrote later in Romans 5 9 now we have been justified by Jesus's blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Here's what we got to catch. And some of you have been in church your whole life, and you still don't get this. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God in flesh, was treated like a sinner, in a legal sense. All of our stuff was placed on him and it became his stuff. And through that act, we are now right standing through Jesus' work. And when God returns and all people are judged, when we face a holy and loving God in the end, God's wrath will not be placed on us because when we are alone with God, he will see Jesus' work over us and we have been saved. Amen? This is, this is the shocking The shocking declaration of the Christian faith. It's like a judge who's sitting there and goes, you have committed a capital offense in Canada. You are going to jail for 40 years. It is guilty. And then says, bailiff, do not put the handcuffs on them. What, sir? No, no. And the judge takes off his robe, comes out of the judgment seat, and says, put the handcuffs on me. I have decided I'm leaving my family and my safety, and I'm going to jail in maximum security for 40 years because I am taking the place of this prisoner. And we go, impossible. That's right, but not with God. It's like a heart surgeon one wrote, sitting in an operation room, cutting someone open, and realizing that the heart of the individual can never be repaired, it is beyond repair, and the surgeon says to the shock of his medical team, I want you to put me under, and you are going to take my heart out, and you're going to take my heart and place it in theirs, and I will die, and they will live. It would never happen, not with God. See, this is the profundity of the faith. Now notice, it doesn't say, well, he tried to do this, or it really sort of worked, but didn't, no, no, he did this. And he says, what's the result of it? Verse 14, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessings, ready, given to Abraham might come to non-Jews through Christ Jesus so that by faith we get to receive the promise of what? The Holy Spirit. The word redemption is a really churchy word, but we need to get the grittiness and the dirtiness of it back. The word redemption comes from a slave market. In Roman times, there were markets full of slaves, prisoners of war, those who had just fallen into destitute times, or taken by violence. And the idea of redemption was, someone would come into the market, and they would pull out money and say, I want to buy that slave. And in many cases, it was a family member who wanted to buy back someone who had got in trouble or even had been captured in war. Here's the image. Jesus walks into the slave market of humanity where every human being is owned by the devil, their sin, and death, and says, I am going to pay the price and the penalty to buy them out of the slave market so they can be my slave. No, so they can be my children. Oh, my goodness. And Paul is saying to these Galatians people, and you think that you're going to get bought out of the slave market? And you think you get the benefits of Abraham because of your own works of getting circumcised or going to church on the right day? No, 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 shh. Jesus has been on the pole and Jesus has actually beaten the cross and this is how you go home. Don't ever go back to what did not save you in the first place. Did you notice that we only get the benefits of Abraham through Jesus? Many of us who don't even think about Abraham should. The only answer to the world's problems are the promises to Abraham. And the only way you access, by the way, Abraham, isn't it interesting that the three largest faiths on earth root their faith in Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But Paul explicitly declares one thing. You only get the benefits and the promises of Abraham through one person, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. It's not a Jewish thing. It's a global thing. Now, what do we learn and why does this matter? Well, let me say this first of all. You might be attending church for the last little while or starting to come back, or you might have been church doing, doing church for a long time, and you might be asking yourself the same question. Why do we talk about Jesus so much in church? I mean, it, it's obvious, not obvious, obvious. Like, if you're really familiar with him, you're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to sing to Jesus again this week. Yeah, okay. Others, you're like, why do you just never shut up about Jesus? Raising your hands and kneeling, what? Here's why we do this in this church and every church. And by the way, it's not about the style. We are obsessed about Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. And this little passage, in a very succinct way, tells us about everything that Jesus has done for the world and for us. Jesus was crucified. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. Jesus, through his Spirit, gives us spiritual gifts. Jesus decided this would be a global thing, not just a Jewish thing. Jesus freed us from trying to obey God's law perfectly by himself obeying God's law perfectly. Jesus decided to deal with our constant in flux and out of flux with love by being loved perfectly. He gives us access to the promises of Abraham. Jesus has redeemed us from the slave market of sin, death, and Satan. Jesus took our sin and didn't just take our sin, he became sin for us. Jesus was hung on a pole to deal with the curse of God. Jesus becomes sin for us to make us children again. That is why we sing to him. That's why we're obsessed with him because he's done so much. Can anyone say amen to that today? Like it's just, it's profound. Yeah, you can clap, but for him. No, genuinely. It's just like, that is why you can never give up on Jesus. That is why Jesus is not like any other religious leader. That is why Christianity is not like any other faith. That is why Christianity is offensive to philosophy and so much much else because it is dependent fully on the work and the love of Jesus for humanity. And all we get to do is come home. Maybe you're sitting here today and you have never crossed the line of faith. As I say here all the time, you might have the title Christian, You might come from another faith or no faith or you don't identify yourself. But here's the question for you. Will you become like Abraham? Abram was intelligent, educated, wealthy, by the way, and yet he still had to humble himself and obey and believe God. And what has God promised the world? What has God in the ultimate ultimate sense said to the world? Believe on my son. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified, made right by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we've got to catch, and if you're a seeker or a skeptic, this is for you. You will never be relationally connected or okay with a perfect God by being fundamentally religious. It doesn't matter if you go to mass and and go to confession five times a day or come to this church and get a Bible app and read it all the time or you travel to Mecca and pray five times a day or fill in the blank. No matter what style of rhythm you want from religion, religion that is based on you saving yourself never will make you right with a holy loving God. But the same with spirituality. It doesn't matter how mindful you are, or caring you are, or in touch you are, or or spiritual. That can't save you. Exercise won't save you. Traveling the world won't save you. Self-discovery will not save you. You can travel California and Europe and have all the self-discovery moments you want. It will never give you purpose in this life and reconcile you with God. You cannot discover, by the way, the universe without the creator of the universe. Fate's not going to help you. Money's not going to help you. A good job's not going to help you. Hard work isn't going to help you. Education discovery, being kind, being nice, giving to charities, serving a good country through public service, though good will not reconcile you with God. Spiritual power, even to blessed people will not help you. Political power will not help you. Having money will not help you. Coming from a good family will not help you. Your racial background will not help you. Your gender will not help you. See, there's only one way home, Jesus. One way home, Jesus. Like I said last week, it was Hans Kung, the very radical Catholic thinker who said, sinners are people that come before God with empty hands and say, I have nothing to give. I have nothing to give. And there in the nothingness, the love of God shows up. See, that's what is being, being taught, what, what Paul's arguing for, guarding for. But one last thing for you who are skeptics or seekers. See, the, 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 the trouble is, the word believe is not helpful for you anymore. Because in our culture, believe does not mean trust. I can believe Singapore exists and it's a beautiful place. I don't need to go to Singapore to know, to believe it is true. When, when we say believe on Jesus, when Paul says believe on Jesus, it's not, oh, he's a nice guy or he existed or he was a moral prophet. No, no, no. To believe on Jesus means you personally trust in him to forgive you of your sins, to overcome death for you, and to set you free. It's relational trust, not intellectual assent alone. So let me ask you the question. You here, you at other sites, you listening online, will you become Abraham, who himself again, educated, good background, religious, wealthy, who still said, I must believe God, not myself. Will you submit? Here's the last thing, and then I'm done. This moment, this sermon, this part is actually changing the whole series for the next few weeks. Because what Paul introduces here is he introduces the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is going to begin to outline to the Galatian churches and to us is this. What is the role of the Holy Spirit to, to live a normal Christian life? It is impossible to forgive your enemies without Jesus, for real. It is impossible to love your neighbor. It is impossible to actually walk out a normal Christian life without a power source that is outside of yourself. We will be like iPads that are dead, flittering the ground, and we need a power source. And Paul's going to say, if you are not saved by good works, then also, by the way, you will not live before God in power by good works. You will do good works, but they're not the source of your power. And this is going to be an undoing moment for many of us, because over the next three or four weeks, what Paul's going to teach us is what a normal Christian life looks like and where the power source is from. And here's what God, I'm praying, is going to undo out of this church. So many of us in this church actually believe the right gospel, grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus alone, but we keep acting like we need to prove ourselves to God. So the the discrepancy between our walk with God and and what we believe is sort of damaged because we keep trying to live a Christian life outside of the power source he's provided. So we're going to do simply this, and, and please just don't stand for this. Let's just bow our heads, wherever you might be, and let's pray three things. Here's the first one. Number one, God, <laughs> thank you for sending Jesus the Son. Thank you that he did all this incredible work for us. And it's real, thank you. And all of us who love you and follow you, whether we're doing great in our faith or not, can you just say out loud or in your heart, just say thank you to Jesus right now? Can you just do that? Just thank you. Redemption, living a perfect life, being consistently loving for us, forgiving our sins. Lord, we pray for those who are among us Who are seekers and skeptics and trying to understand? Holy Spirit, would you go and open their eyes so they can see the beauty and the profundity and the love of Jesus so they could come home and encounter him, not by self effort, but by love? And may that work out. And lastly, here's the big prayer Father and Son, continue to send the Holy Spirit across Sanctus Church in such a way that not only do we know the gospel right, But the implication of the gospel, a living of a holy life at work, at home, in friendships, online, becomes different because of the actual power source and presence of the Holy Spirit. Begin to teach us what this means. Even we who have walked with you for decades, give us a new, not just intellectual insight, a new experiential reality with the Holy Spirit who was given to us before we were righteous, before we were kind, before we were good. Lord, we continue to ask for your great, mighty, unnatural, and beautiful work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.